Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. The 20 deaths here in Connecticut of those children and the six colleagues of mine should have been enough. We have been begging Congress to take action for 10 years. We are being held hostage by 50 senators in Washington who refuse to even put it to a vote despite what we the American people want. What are we doing? Why are you here if not to solve a problem as existential as this? As a nation, we have to ask, when in God's name are we going to stand up to the gun lobby? This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Those were voices this week reacting to the latest school shooting in Uvalde, Texas on Tuesday, where 19 children and two teachers were killed. We heard from Sandy Hook survivor Mary Ann Jacobs, Poe Murray, Newtown Action Alliance chairwoman, NBA Warriors head coach Steve Kerr, Connecticut U.S. Senator Chris Murphy, and President Biden. Today, where we live, we want to hear from you. How are you and your family responding to this latest tragic shooting? Or how are you pushing for change? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, after the deaths at Sandy Hook Elementary School, gun laws were tightened here in Connecticut, and Democrats pushed for federal reform. Nearly a decade later, many Americans remain frustrated that federal legislation has stalled and mass shootings continue. The Gun Violence Archive has counted 212 mass shootings so far just in 2022, 27 of those happening at schools. One reason for the inaction in Congress is powerful lobbying from the National Rifle Association. Coming up, we hear from a former firearms executive turned critic about what needs to change. Ryan Bussey, author of Gunfight, joins us later. First, when school shootings happen elsewhere, schools and staff must respond. They soothe, they protect, and they worry. What if this happens in my school? It's an unfair, unfair burden to put on educators, but it's the reality in the United States. We wanted to take time to hear from Connecticut teachers. Joining us first on Zoom is Lisa Cordova. She's a kindergarten teacher at Glastonbury East Hartford Magnet School. That's pre-K through grade five. And she's president of the Creck Education Association. Lisa, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. How long have you been a teacher, Lisa? This is my 32nd year teaching. Mm. That's a long time. Uh, it is a long it, time, but it goes by quickly. So I wanted to ask what your reaction was when you heard about the school shooting in Uvalde. Where were you? Um, well, I was home. Um, I had had a busy day, so I had not watched the news. And then when I got home, I saw like a little span underneath like the TV. And I said, oh, my goodness. And honestly, it brought me back to the day I found out about Sandy Hook. It just tore me apart. Like you just get chills. 
And it really, it really threw me for a loop. It's been a rough year. And this was just one more thing that really affected my mental health, honestly. And so the next day, you have to be back in the classroom. What was that like to be back in the school knowing that this has happened again? Um, of, of last week, we actually had a training, like an Alice training, how to prepare for these things. And so when I got in, I actually walked in my room and I checked my plan. All right, if something were to happen, how are I going to get, how am I going to get kids out of here? How am I going to keep them safe? Um, I teach kindergarten. So they're at an age that they don't know how to process information, right? They don't know the difference between reality and fiction and non-realities. So basically, you know, we didn't really discuss it. We just talked about being safe and how we love each other and we move it forward uh, to keep them learning. So you mentioned that you looked at your exit plan, and this is something that, that teachers and principals, school boards have been thinking about uh, as these mass shootings continue. Um, I, I'd mentioned uh, 27 school shootings so far this year. I mean, that's it's hard to fathom, but that that's what the numbers have been, uh, especially since Columbine. And so when you think about, uh, again, the fact that you have to have a response plan, that must make you angry. It makes it so frustrating, right? I've been teaching 32 years. When I first got into teaching, you know, it, you were just full of hopes and dreams, right? Of what you can do for the students. And now you're also added, how am I gonna keep them safe from things, external things that I have no control over, such as somebody coming into the building to intentionally hurt them. So yeah, it's super frustrating and it's very frustrating when they don't make any new laws to uh, curb the gun violence as such as background checks. That to me seems like a no brainer. Can you talk more about the kids in your class? So when we think about kindergarten, so anywhere from like four to, to six year old uh, children, and when you think about even what they've been through in the pandemic, uh, you know, how it's hard for them at their age to distinguish, you know, telling the difference between fact and fiction. Right. So the students I have now are five and six years old. So when the pandemic hit, they were two and three years old. At that time, nobody was leaving their house. They were watching a lot of uh, YouTube and television. So some of the things on YouTube and television are real and some are not real. So I feel like they have not been able to understand reality because they were sent back and forth to these different types of shows or uh, videos and things like that. So when they came to me um, in September, a lot of them were had trauma and a lot of them had no skills as to how to interact with each other because they literally did not have play dates. They were all home and they only stayed with their family unit and if they went out, it was only with their family unit. So that provides a lot of trauma too. We've worked really hard this year with social workers and with our lessons um, to again, move them forward to get them back on track so they can be you know, fun learners and, and enjoy school because that's where, um, that's where they should be. Mm -hmm. 
You mentioned that, you know, when these school shootings happen, it's not good for your mental health. Obviously, the (laughs) mental health of children has been strained over the last two years. Do you feel like you have enough support? What do you want to hear from state leaders about the kind of supports that you and your colleagues also need in the classroom? Our colleagues and I really need to make sure that uh, we have the best protections in our building. Are, do we have state-of-the-art locks? Do we have a safety place where we can shut things in if we need to get out and we need to block somebody from coming in? Um, do people understand uh, the mental health of the students, right? And how we can make sure they get the needs that they get so they're not the ones in 10 years or 15 years doing this type of sad, sad action. You know, it's been nearly a decade since Sandy Hook. Uh, When you talk about making sure that leaders know that resources, uh, including making sure that you have locks in your school, uh, there are still places where uh, teachers and staff don't feel safe. Uh, They don't have enough safeguards in place, Lisa. Well, you know, with CREC, most of our schools are state of the art and they're mostly brand new. But you feel as a person coming into the building, like, is that the best lock? Are the doors locked at every moment? It takes one second for somebody to run to their car. You're like, I just got to grab my lunch, right? And then somebody watching, like you just, your head goes into places where you really don't want to be. So you just want to make sure that everything you have is state of the art so that you feel as protected as you can be, right? You mentioned earlier that you've been teaching for 32 years. How much longer do you think that you'll be teaching, Lisa? Well, that's a great question. At the beginning of the year, I would have said, I'm going to last until I'm at least 60. Um, I love the kids. I love teaching. I love it. I love it. But it is definitely wearing on me. And I want to make sure that the students have the best leader, instructional leader that they can have. So right now, um, I'm going to keep going. I'm, this year is coming to an end. I'm going to be able to reassess and get myself moving for next year. So I'm hoping to make it to 60 because I do love what I do. But I, I, to be honest with you, I have been checking my investment portfolio. I have, you know, been putting things in place in case one day I'm like, you know what, I need a break. So. That's where I'm at. But I do love teaching. Teaching is the best job you can ever have. I love, love the children. Mm. Well, thank you, Lisa Cordova, for sharing a little bit of your story with us. And we wish you and your colleagues the best as the school year uh, gets to a close just in another uh, less than a month. Yes, I know. Well, that's another thing that brought up right for today. Those teachers in Texas, Today was their last day of school. This is our happiest time of the year. And I feel for them because now that's taken away forever. But so let's get through. I'm, I'm hoping that uh, Congress will come together to pass laws so we can all feel safe and educate our children the way they should be educated. Thank you, Lisa Cordova, kindergarten teacher with Glastonbury East Hartford Magnet School. Now, producer Katie Pellico reached out to a former guest on the show, Dr. Dave Basso. He's a Berlin social studies teacher and 2012 Teacher of the Year. Let's take a listen. 
And it's just so difficult to adequately describe uh, what many teachers and, and so many others uh, beyond the classroom are, are feeling. I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking, it's, uh, it's numbing, it's maddening, um, it, it's, it's nightmarish. And there are so many people who are reliving the nightmare. You know, teachers have experienced layer upon layer upon layer of expectations and responsibilities. And, um, you know, it's worth asking, you know, what are others doing, uh, especially those who are in position to do something about it? Um, I think teachers are scared, uh, we're, we're exhausted, um, yet at the same time, we, we are expected and we need to be strong and hopeful for our students. Um, you know, but I, I wonder, should we, should we continue uh, to fly our flags at half-mast every day? Uh, I mean, is that ever going to change? Um, you know, is it more accurate to ask kids, you know, what are they going to be if they grow up? I mean, it's just so disparaging. Again, that's Dr. Dave Basso, a Berlin social studies teacher. After the break, we'll continue to hear from another longtime educator. And you can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. We're spending time this hour to hear from you in the wake of another school shooting, this time in Uvalde, Texas. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can also share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter, at where we live. Uh, Noelle in Bridgeport emailed and shared, I have few words, but extremely strong feelings of frustration, disgust, and despair. I know people still living with the effects of the trauma of Sandy Hook. I'm feeling a strong desire to leave this country. We're also taking time to hear from educators in Connecticut. Now, Columbine in 1999 is often brought up as a turning point in America when it comes to school mass shootings. 
our state would become the site of the deadliest school shooting in the U.S. at Sandy Hook Elementary School in 2012. My next guest was teaching in our state on that day. Joining us now on Zoom is Sheena Graham, a 2019 Connecticut Teacher of the Year. She retired in January after 38 years as a performing arts and music teacher in K-12 through public schools, primarily in Bridgeport. Sheena, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. First off, 38 years. Congratulations on that long uh, career, Sheena. You must have made such an impact on so many in that time. Well, I know that the students made a great impact on me as well. Um, And 38 years, yes, it is a long time. Schools have changed a lot over that period. You taught students of all ages, including in your hometown of Ansonia. And so I know that you've retired now, but when you saw or heard the news about Uvalde, what was your reaction? Oh, boy. It brought me back in time to Sandy Hook immediately. Um, I can clearly remember that was a Friday. Um, I, we were in the midst of preparing for a show. We used to do children's theater and um, would invite the elementary students in. So we had our dress rehearsal that day. And when Monday came and the school buses pulled up and the children began to pass through the lobby, at that point I was at Central High School, it seemed as if time froze. You know, the adults in the building, the students in the hallway, everyone just stopped. And we watched these little children pass by us, and it just made everything that took place in Sandy Hook even more real, um, harder to deal with. We, after watching them go through the lobby and head to their seats, I had to go backstage. And we huddled up, the teenagers and myself, to see how we were going to get through this together. And the thing that got us through was that for a moment, for a short period of time, we could provide some joy to someone else. And in doing so, help us to get through that moment. So that was nearly a decade ago. And since that time, more emphasis, as we heard from Lisa earlier, uh, having an exit plan if a shooter were to come into the building. You know, children now are going through lockdown drills. Uh, what has that mean, meant to you, the, the toll that has taken on you, the stress of also having to worry about that when you were an educator? You know, it's, um, it does add an extra layer to what your responsibilities are. I think teachers are naturally nurturing individuals. Um, We care for our students so much and we take in, you know, their pain, uh, just everything about them. We we feel responsible for their growth. Um, The trying to keep them safe is, is challenging. Schools are designed so differently. So, for instance, moving from one school to the next, one school I might have windows, but the other one I don't. One uh, classroom might have two ways to exit. The other one doesn't. Um, One, you might be able to shelter kids, like there might be a spot in the room where you cannot be seen. And then in the next one, 
there's no such thing. So it does put an extra burden on educators um, for ways to keep their students safe. What do you want to see change, uh, Sheena? There's got to be a change in how uh, weapons are accessed. And I know there are black markets and all that other stuff, but sometimes it seems as though it's just too easy. The young man um, in this last case, being able to, right after his birthday, make those purchases. And I, I don't know who said it, but one person said, you know, he's not old enough to legally drink, but he's old enough to buy those weapons. Mm. There's got to be a change. Do you miss teaching, Sheena? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I miss my students so much. Um, a lot of them were still in contact because once you're my student, you're mine for life. Um, so even my early on students, uh, it's embarrassing to admit, but a lot of my former students have grandchildren now. And so, you know, we're in contact on Facebook. So I definitely, I definitely miss the students. I miss teaching. Um, something that was said earlier is, you know, we, we want to keep our students safe. And I think that's part of what had me retire when I did is it was becoming harder to keep them safe. You know, um, when COVID hit, it brought a whole new um, level to trying to keep students safe. And I think that takes a toll. Do you worry about your colleagues who are still teaching, Sheena? Definitely. Definitely. In fact, um, with this latest shooting, uh, as being a teacher of the year, you become part of a cohort that stretches across our entire country. So every time something happens in an, excuse me, in another state, you have family in that state because that's how it feels to be part of that cohort. And so when this one took place, it's actually in an area where the 2019 Texas Teacher of the Year is. And wow. he knows people there. He is in that school building sometimes. So it's, it's um, you know, it's never any one person's issue or any one state's issue or one city or town. This is this belongs to all of us, and it belongs to all our legislators as well. You know, a lot of people are frustrated about uh, inaction that they see in Washington, but for people who are listening in our state, who uh, has passed uh, stronger gun laws, uh, we have a congressional delegation that supports federally stronger gun laws. There's still a feeling of you know what can we do. What would you say to right. You know, it's, that's a tough one because as an individual, it's difficult. Collectively, we have more power. I am so proud of Connecticut for putting in place the legislation that it has. And I actually had tears in my eyes listening to uh, Mr. Murphy, when he was saying, you know, what are we doing? You know, what is it going to take for us to make that move? I'm hoping that 
I've heard it went viral and I'm hoping it does. And that will make the country collectively work together to make some change happen because that's what it's going to take. We all have to own it. And as I said, and that includes the legislators for the entire country, we all have to own it. Meanwhile, it's it's uh, left to schools and teachers and staff uh, to protect children. I wanted to share what Erin uh, shared with us. She's a K through four literacy interventionist at Hartford Public Schools. She wrote in part, we walked into our school today, that's Wednesday, to find locked classroom doors, maintenance people checking alarms, and emails about upcoming shelter-in-place drills. For too long, the work has been left up to teachers and school children to practice and prepare to face the unthinkable. The lives of our children should no longer be a part of political debates, power struggles, or thoughts and prayers devoid of action. We have to know that it's not a matter of if it will reach your own community, your friends, or your family. It's only a matter of when. When we continue to allow unfettered access to weapons, we pay with the lives of the most innocent. Sheena, how do you respond? That is, I, I couldn't say it more powerfully than that. It is, um, it is the lives of our children that are at stake. And as educators, you know, I know what it is. I, my classroom door was locked all the time. Um, the hardest part to face is when you walk in after one of these situations or one of these occurrences and you have all kinds of children sitting in front of you with different views. Some are afraid. Some are like, oh, no, I could handle it. Um, you know, they're in denial. And somehow you have to bring them all to a place of peace and then attempt to teach that day um it's it's very challenging the from and it's challenging to everyone in the building so it's not just the educators and the students but the administrators who have the burden of overseeing everyone else for the custodians who have the burden of making sure everything is locked down and some of the schools have so many entrances and exits um the security, the, you name it, it's the counselors that, that are just overloaded with the everyday concerns, and now they have this on top of that. So it, it is a tough situation, and I am so proud of each and every person that is working in the field because it is the best profession, I believe, I might be biased, um, in, in the world. And to be willing to take all of that on to benefit our students um, is an honorable thing to do. That's Sheena Graham, another Connecticut Teacher of the Year. She's a performing arts and music educator in K through 12 public schools, primarily in Bridgeport. She just retired in January after 38 years as an educator. Sheena, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much, Lucy, for having me. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. Now, after the break, we change our focus and talk about the inaction of Congress to pass meaningful gun laws that can help prevent additional mass shootings. We talk to a former firearms executive turned critic about the power of the NRA and what needs to change. Ryan Bussey, author of Gunfight, My Battle Against the Industry That Radicalized America, joins us 
What questions do you have? You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My next guest says it's time for responsible gun owners to save our democracy. Ryan Bussey was a longtime gun manufacturing executive, but he left the industry in 2020, becoming an outspoken critic of the National Rifle Association and an industry that he says changed over the last 20 years, abandoning a code of, of responsibility that it once adhered to. He told the New York Times when Sandy Hook happened, it was, quote, a decisive moment for him. Bussey is the author of Gunfight, My Battle Against the Industry That Radicalized America. He joins us now on Zoom. Ryan, welcome to the show. Well, um, thanks so much for having me. Um, I wish I didn't need to write a book, <clears throat> and I wish I didn't need to be here chatting with you today, but um, I appreciate the opportunity. Mm -hmm. I mentioned that you were top brass in the gun manufacturing industry for more than 20 years. And so give us a glimpse of your experience and what inspired you to speak out now, Ryan? Well, I think it's important for people to know, certainly um, I get this question of like, what, like, how did we end up here? And I think the story, you know, the story in my book and the story of my life is illustrative of, of how that happened. I grew up on a ranch, a rural ranch and guns were a central part of my life. In fact, uh, you know, they came to represent a good and healthy part of my life because we worked hard and so many of the things we didn't have a lot of time to have fun when we did have fun. Um, a lot of times it involved guns, you know, hunting or shooting with my dad or my brother and my grandfather. Um, but it was always done in a very responsible and decent way. Um, safety was always at the forefront. And when I entered the industry in 1995, that same sort of decency and, um, you know, belief in social norms still existed in the firearms industry. And there were many self-imposed rules and regulations, um, you know, laid over the top and demanded by the industry trade group, the National Shooting Sports Foundation. Um, and over time that broke down um, in favor of profits at all costs driven by the NRA, which sought to win elections at all costs. And the tools that were used to do both of those things uh, have had disastrous impacts on our country. Can you go back? Uh, you'd said that uh, there, the code of responsibility, uh, the way that the firearms industry even approached uh, conferences and gun shows and some of those rules uh, that were followed, um, they went out the window. Can you describe more about what you mean, especially when we hear about these latest gunmen in their tactical gear? Uh, a very illustrative example um, certainly has been brought to the fore in the last 14 days. In as late as 2006 and 2007, um, the industry trade group, which governs the SHOT Show, um, which is composed of all of uh, industry companies, would not allow tactical gear of any sort or tactical advertisements of any sort to be displayed in its own SHOT Show, which is the one of the largest trade shows in the world. Um, that's the large annual industry trade show. You could view those things um, and the marketing, but you had to be a law enforcement or military 
personnel and you had to have credentials to prove that. And it was in a cordoned off small section of the trade show. So the industry knew, you know, somewhere in its DNA still knows that proliferation of glove, tactical gloves, plate carriers, bulletproof vests, helmets, all of this militarization stuff that we've seen now two horrific mass shooters uh, use and wear as part of a kind of costume or get up and then obviously a defensive and offensive use as well was not even allowed by the industry itself by the industry's own rules and i have to assume that that was a very conscious decision because the industry knew the dangers that that could arise Mm. Uh, you you have talked about uh also um, how the nra responded after columbine in in 1999 ironically after uvalde there's another nra conference scheduled in houston and i'm wondering if you can talk about uh, that moment uh, when the nra uh, had to respond and how it responded and how it became a part of the playbook now for the last uh two decades yeah in april of 1999 we had a situation that's not, not uh, sadly, not dissimilar from the one that our country is facing right now. Uh, Columbine happened in April, and, and uh, just a few, about eight or nine days later, the NRA was scheduled to have its annual convention in Denver, uh, just a few miles away from Columbine. And as we look back now through uncovered tapes and NRA internal NRA documents, we see that that was a turning point for our country and um, for the you know for my life. Obviously, I didn't know it, um, and it happened slowly at first. But the NRA had internal debates with its top leadership: Jim Baker, Chris Cox, Wayne Lapierre, several other lobbyists, um, and public affairs uh, professionals. And they just they had an option to either, you know, play ball, be conciliatory, look for solutions or double down and say, hell no, we're not doing anything. Let's turn this into an advantage. The industry will come with us. If we say we're being attacked over this, perhaps we can drive sales. Um, perhaps this is a way to stoke the culture war. And obviously they selected the second of those options um, to great uh, disastrous effect, not just on guns, but on our entire political um, you know, ecosystem. Mm. You've been pretty outspoken about how the NRA has uh, that came upon this idea that fear and conspiracy and hatred of others can be used to drive and win political races and and in turn drive up sales. Can you talk more about that, Ryan? Yeah, a lot of people, um, I, and I've heard it reported in air that the NRA is an arm of the firearms manufacturers. My experience in the firearms industry is that it's exactly the opposite of that. The NRA essentially unofficially runs the entire show, including um, the firearms industry, not in a sort of a, like a management meeting memo kind of official way, but somewhere subconsciously industry members in the NSSF stumbled onto this idea that the same things that the NRA used to get the worst out of people, um, gin them up into a, almost you know voters and eventually america into a just one degree below boiling over fear and racism and conspiracy theories and all all the stuff that we see propagated across our country now um, that those things could also be used to drive gun sales and so there became a very tight symbiosis between the industry and nra and the nra led the way Um, and and if you doubt this um, i challenge you to find well first off my book is the only one ever written 
and really encapsulates almost all of the dissent from any industry insider ever. Um, I think that's, I mean, that's amazing. How can that, how can that happen with an industry? So you can see how, how tight that political police state is. Um, and that would be lent to the Trump administration too. Um, just ask Adam Kinzinger, Liz Cheney, how it works now. Um, and, you know, here, here we are where that sort of all or nothing politics has invaded everything we care about, climate policy, women's reproductive rights, right down to local school boards. Um, it's, it's uh, you know, we've got it bad. You're hearing Ryan Bussey here on Where We Live, a former firearms executive, now an outspoken critic of the industry and the National Rifle Association. He's the author of Gunfight, My Battle Against the Industry That Radicalized America. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And so you explain there's a real clear cause and effect relationship when we think about the NRA and the lack of stronger federal gun laws. Tell us more about you know what needs to change here. Well, I, you know, we're in a, we're in a culture war. Um, th there are policy changes for sure, but a lot of what we've seen is a breakdown in social norms. Um, for, for instance, open carry across the United States is now prolific it's in, in, we've seen it in Michigan and Kentucky and Virginia, my home state of Montana. My book opens with my own son being threatened by uh, an air quotes here, Second Amendment patriot with an open carry gun, intimidating and, and uh, pushing my son at a Black Lives Matter rally. And democracy does not exist at the barrel of a gun. And so we've seen these breakdown in norms. Obviously, there are also policies that need to be instituted. I, I, I do want to say I'm not a fan of uh, this idea that we can solve gun violence um, because I don't think we solve things in democracies, um, especially complex democracies with freedoms like we enjoy and wish to enjoy. What we can do is institute policies that make things marginally better. We've done it in so many areas of our lives. You know, a couple I can think of, uh, cigarettes and tobacco. We still have lung cancer and we still have abuse of tobacco and we still have some bad health effects from tobacco. but. 15 or 18 years ago, we decided to make to take actions that made our tobacco uh, and cigarette situation marginally better. Is it perfect? No. Did we solve it? No. But have we made it better? I think so. Um, I think of traffic. Uh, that's a, it's an important freedom. We like to drive our cars. We want to get across town. We have places to go. Um, that's a it's an important freedom for most people to be able to to transport themselves in their own vehicle. But we don't think it's okay to drive through town at 100 miles an hour, especially through a 25 mile an hour school zone, because we're responsible, because we need regulations, because we care more about live kids than dead ones. And I think those are two illustrative examples about how freedoms still exist, but we've taken marginal actions to make things better instead of worse. And I think those are the sorts of things we have to do now here on guns. Mm you've said many times that this is how the system is meant to work and so when you heard about uvaldi do you believe uh, that it's just a matter of time that there'll be another school shooting ryan i believe it's a matter of time before there'll be a dozen more school shootings very sad um i don't know how we can keep as i <clears throat> have said um i don't know how we can keep pumping lighted matches and cans of gasoline into a closed system 
and expect that we don't have explosions. We have, we're always going to have a few, but we have, we just must stop with the purposeful pumping in of both accelerant and lighted match. When we think about the NRA today, I know that at one point it entered into bankruptcy court. And so what is the role of the NRA today? I think the demise of the NRA has been drastically overstated. Um, you mentioned that the NRA convention is getting ready to happen. And the NRA has been in the news. Many of us have read books and seen news reports about the incredible malfeasance. And I think we all know about the um, overt, divisive, angry, race-baiting politics that the NRA has propagated. And yet, if you look at the NRA attendee list, every single major gun manufacturer and their executives will be at the NRA supporting them just like they always have. Um, and it, I, I think of the NRA much like I think of Trump, because I think in many ways, it's exactly the same system. The NRA developed the system and handed it off to the political right. But NRA may be weakened. Um, I'm dubious about how weak it is, but the NRA-ism is not weakened, much like Trump may be not elected, but Trump-ism doesn't seem to be weakened all that much. And so it's not dissimilar from a prairie fire that has you know, been lit and we have a a wind, a dry wind blowing. And um, even if the source is behind us, the fire is still burning. So while the organization may not be as healthy as it once was in terms of membership and fundraising, the politics of the NRA has certainly not gone, gone away. It's raging still, Ryan. Yeah, I believe that. I, you know, the my book, I, I essentially make the point that what everything that we experience now in our divided politics with our families and our workplaces and um, this, you know, things that we've all experienced, especially in the last five years, really has its roots in the all or nothing culture war politics of the NRA. If you, if you go back, I believe I lived in the kitchen where this was all cooked up. Um, and, and in that way, I think that this is the penultimate political issue of our time. We must figure out a way to not only to save lives, but to save everything else that we care about. I'm very, very passionate about the environment and about climate change. And I know that if we cannot roll back the politics, the all or nothing politics of the NRA, we cannot make improvements on something as simple and foundational as democracy and safety and lives of innocent children. I don't think we're going to make a lot of progress on climate or on women's reproductive rights or on you know, again, I mentioned local school boards, right? We have to break this down. So I think working on this issue for me is, is the penultimate um, is the penultimate project. Again, you're hearing Ryan Bussey here on Where We Live, a former firearms executive, now an outspoken critic of the industry and the National Rifle Association. He's written the book Gunfight, My Battle Against the Industry That Radicalized America. Jonathan's calling in from Greenwich. Jonathan, what's your question? Um, thanks, Lucy, for covering this really important issue from, from a variety of angles, um, and Ryan for, for your work. Um, I had a question for Ryan about smart gun technology. Um, I know firearm manufacturers have been pretty resistant to adopting it, um, even though a lot of people believe that really could prevent um, a lot of gun death and injury from authorized, unauthorized users of, of guns. And so I'm just wondering um, what his thoughts are on what the problems are in terms of getting the industry to adopt that technology and what some alternative solutions might be to getting there. Yeah, it's an interesting question because in, in most industries, that sort of uh, technological advancement would be like a holy grail. Um, 
And so I think um, the, the, the thing that keeps it from happening is that um, there are conspiracy theories that build up around if there are a battery in a gun, might it fail? If there are electronics in a gun, might the government be able to shut it off? And I, and I know this sounds silly, right? We walk around with our phones all the time. Um, but the, this sort of fearful nature of the way guns are carried and used often means that people think they're going to need them at a moment's notice and nothing, um, n- no modernity can be in your way to slow that down, a password. <laughs> now, I think it's foolish. I think we can get there, but those are the sorts of cultural that you see how the same sort of conspiracy theory and fear that drives the NRA and our political system also keeps us from adopting this modern technology. Again, you're hearing Ryan Bussey here on Where We Live. If you have a question, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, how did you reconcile your role in the firearm industry, Ryan? You're now an outspoken critic, but you know, you've know you also written about how uh, you, know, you helped lead a boycott against, uh, I believe, Smith & Wesson when it uh, worked with the Clinton administration over um, concessions on marketing. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I rationalized it. It became increasingly difficult. That's why I left. That's why I wrote a book about it all. But um, the sort of healthy culture that I grew up with, I formed up and helped build um, a company in its early stages based around things and activities that um, I still believe in. Um, High quality guns. I didn't, you know, we didn't engage in incendiary advertisements. We didn't sell AR-15s. We didn't all, and still, and, and the company I work for still doesn't. And so um, it's not perfect, um, but the, I rationalize it that, look, I, I have the right to fight for my version of responsible gun ownership. And in fact, maybe it's better that I stay here and fight for it because if I leave, I'll be the only one. And I, I know this sounds a lot like, um, you know, Trump cabinet officials that stay, um, unlike Trump cabinet officials, I was speaking out, I was fighting, I was trying to weaken the NRA because they were trying to steal, in my opinion, in the way I looked at, they were trying to steal something sacred from me and from other responsible gun owners like me. You've mentioned being a responsible gun owner and you say it's time for them to speak up. So tell us more about you know how that will um, impact again, uh, what has become uh, so, po- so polarizing in our country. Well, the NRA has successfully, I don't know how, because um, it just sounds so foolish to say it, but the NRA and their political messaging has established this system now where people believe that background checks are in some way anti-gun or um, you know, communist or socialist or that flag laws are, or that all of these things that are just um, reasonable limits on a freedom, not unlike a school zone when you drive across town, um, and I simply refuse to believe those definitions. They're just absolutely crazy. Um, every freedom we have is tempered by some sort of regulation or responsibility. And to think that this one can be absolute, um, if it ends up being absolute, I can tell you eventually we'll have no rights because our democracy will fall around it. So everything that we have must be tempered. And, that, and that's the way I look at it. And, and in, so in some ways, I'm more pro-gun than all these people, all these 
you know, all these radicals who, who define themselves as pro-gun because I will do what it takes. I will fight for what it takes to keep people safe and to have a vibrant democracy. If we let this go much further, we, we won't have a vibrant democracy. Getting back to that NRA conference in Houston, uh, what do you expect um, will be said, especially just days after this, uh, this latest tragedy in Uvalde? I think they'll, my guess is they'll try to be some half-assed conciliatory talk from somebody. I don't think it'll be very convincing. I can tell you that if you were in the aisles, um, again, the sort of prairie fire that the NRA has let from attendees and radicals, you would hear some very, very disturbing talk about the degree to which um, this is nobody's fault except for some shooter, or you'll probably even hear um, crisis actor talk like we heard after um, Sandy Hook. Um, because once a group of radicals has been set on its course, um, and the NRA has certainly done that, you can't always control them. So even if the NRA tries to temper it a little bit, I wouldn't, I think, I think this is horrible enough that they, that they may try to, um, they may not throw as many punches as they normally do, but I can tell you, you're, you're, you're going to hear some pretty incendiary stuff if you were on the floor there. Again, that's Ryan Bussey, a former firearms executive, now an outspoken critic of the National Rifle Association and the firearms industry. He's the author of Gunfight, My Battle Against the Industry That Radicalized America. Ryan, thank you for your time today on the show. Thanks so much. Um, really appreciate the thoughtful and intelligent discussion. So best to everyone. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. We'll be back tomorrow.